Coming up on this episode of Cancer Chat. Every single person has something in their family. So there's no family in the world that doesn't have something that quote unquote is running in it, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, and we try to destigmatize that for patients. So we're not trying to place blame. We're really just trying to figure out how can we use this genetic information to help diagnose cancer earlier, to help get better treatment, uh, potentially save someone's life in the family. Hi, and welcome to Cancer Chat. On today's show, MUSC Hollings Cancer Center Melanoma and Advanced Skin Cancer Program Medical Director, Dr. Andrea Abbott, opens up conversation about the connection between genetics and cancer with Hollings genetic counselors, Libby Malfris and Charlie Harris. Enjoy the chat. Libby, Charlie, thanks for um, joining me today so we could talk about genetic testing and counseling and who this is important for. I am super excited that you both are at Hollings. So what is genetic testing? Just kind of like the the basics. What's the details? Like what is the high level stuff that everyone should know? What is genetic counseling and, and who needs it? So genetic counseling is when we evaluate a personal and a family history of cancer so that we can kind of discuss what are those risks of hereditary cancer and how do we manage those risks. And we know that there are recommendations based off risks and we kind of discuss how can we do certain screenings and management for you and then for family members as well to see um, to manage those risks better. Well, then does that mean like everyone should just go in and get it so you know if you're at risk or not? Great question. So not everyone needs to have genetic testing. Not everyone needs counseling. Um, For some people that have higher risks, uh, we know that there are kind of four things that I point out to patients when we're thinking what in a family could make us think it's hereditary. Um, We kind of tend to focus on people who've had really young cancer, 50 years or younger, people who have lots of people in their family where multiple relatives have the same or related cancers. Um, Sometimes we're seeing people who've had two separate types of cancer. And then others where we're seeing more rare cancers like ovarian and pancreatic cancer. Um, And those are the people who we tend to see that are needing those referrals versus people who aren't having a lot of cancer in their family or when we're having cancers that are pretty far separated from that person that we're speaking with. So thanks, Charlie, for that. So you're saying that if somebody's had like two cancers, like breast cancer and colon cancer, that would qualify them for genetic testing? So when we're seeing somebody with two separate cancers, it kind of comes down to what we call the National Comprehensive Cancer Network criteria. Um, Certain cancers, they qualify for that criteria on their own, whereas others, there's kind of more difficult ways to meet that criteria. It could be they need extra family history. It could be they need to be a younger age. Um, We're kind of trained in genetic counseling to how do we make somebody fit into that criteria? Uh, What do we see in that personal or family history that might qualify for, for that testing? So Libby, what should somebody do like if they don't know their family history? What if you're adopted? Well, if you have a limited family history, then sometimes that will help qualify you for genetic counseling and testing. Um, So that's something that many of the guidelines take into account because we realize not everyone has that expansive family history knowledge. Um, So sometimes we can get people qualified for testing uh, just based on limited family history. Uh, But I do think it's important for people to realize that the vast majority of cancer is not hereditary. I mean, cancer is really common. One out of every two men will get cancer in their lifetime and one out of every three women. So cancer is incredibly common. What we're looking for are patterns, um, sort of a preponderance of multiple people affected, or as Charlie mentioned, some of those uh, red flags or risk factors. 
So if I heard you right, it's really people in your family who have had cancer at young ages, if there's lots of cancer in your family, or if you've had multiple cancers, that's maybe when you should start thinking about genetic counseling. Does that sound right? Yeah. And there's a couple of, as Charlie mentioned, certain cancers that they by themselves are candidates for testing. So if you have ovarian cancer, if you have high-risk prostate cancer, if you have uh, pancreatic, if you have male breast cancer, so these are things that even with no family history, just an individual with those specific cancers, they're candidates for testing just because those are more rare and more frequently associated with genetic changes. So I read a study that suggested that black women may have a higher risk of having hereditary breast cancer without any family history, and that maybe every black woman who has breast cancer should have genetic testing. Do you agree with that? Is that your recommendation? Well, I mean, I think that sometimes when studies first come out, it takes a little while for the national guidelines to catch up. You know, sometimes a study will show us things that are interesting. Um, In fact, the American Academy of Surgeons has said that all women with breast cancer um, should have genetic counseling and testing, but the national guidelines haven't backed that up yet. So sometimes if we're talking about whether or not insurance will pay for it, which is also a concern for some people, uh, we have to wait for those guidelines to catch up with the studies. Um, But I think that's definitely interesting and something that is coming. Um, And it's not unusual for there to be guidelines for certain ethnic groups. Like if you think about individuals who have Ashkenazi Jewish background, genetic testing is recommended for all individuals just because there is a higher rate of inherited cancers in that um, population. So I don't think that it's unheard of, and certainly it's not something um, that we haven't dealt with before. So those are really good points. What would be the downside? Like, why wouldn't you want to have genetic counseling? It seems like it's going to give you really great information. So why shouldn't everyone just do it? We, we kind of say that there are limitations and um, downfalls doing genetic testing. Uh, for some people, they are kind of going in thinking, okay, I want to only know about breast cancer. If we do testing and we find a genetic mutation, a gene that's telling you there are five different cancers that you're not at risk for, is that something that they can emotionally handle Oh, other- wow. So so you could go in <laughs> thinking, I just want to hear about breast cancer, and then you get this information you weren't expecting? Exactly. We see it all the time where somebody comes in, they've got this large family history of breast cancer, and now we're telling them they might have this risk for colon cancer, they might have this risk for pancreatic cancer. Um, and as I'm sure everyone knows, pancreatic cancer is one of those that we don't typically have great screening for. We don't really know how to catch it until it's there. Uh, so to find out that risk is there is very scary for some people. Uh, Another one of our biggest downfalls is that we know that if somebody has a genetic mutation, there is that 50% chance with each of their children that they've passed that on. And for some people, they start to feel guilt in that. Um, And I also think that it's important to realize the more things we test for, the more we will find. And some of these genetic changes, we don't fully understand yet what the meaning is or what the significance is. So when we do these larger panels of tests, meaning we test for 80 plus genes, the more you test for, the more likely you're going to find a variant of what they call uncertain significance. So it's sort of like the question mark result. It's not a positive, it's not a negative. It's a result that 
we don't know enough about yet to know whether that actually does increase your risk for cancer. So in many of those cases, we have to wait for more data to come through. And that means more people get tested, we find out more about that genetic change, and eventually we will be able to put it either in the positive or the negative category. But right now, it's in the question mark category. And so that can be really stressful for patients. So I think from a population standpoint, we're not quite ready yet to test the whole world to see if they're at increased risk for cancer. We don't have the infrastructure in place to screen every individual for cancer. And we're narrowing it now to people at highest risk of having one of these hereditary cancer changes. So take me through the process. You know, let's say that we identify the right candidate and you've told them, you know, here are the potential risks. Um, They come into your office. What happens when they come to see you? So counseling is really a conversation. So most counseling sessions last anywhere from 30 to 30 minutes to an hour. And we sit down with a patient and their support person generally, uh, and we talk about the family history first. That's one of the things that we gather. We try to get as much detail as we can, as much as they know. Uh, One of the things patients can do to help us in this process is doing a little bit of homework ahead of time. So we tell patients, look, find out every bit of information you can about your family member's health history. So particularly cancer. So who had cancer? What age were they diagnosed? What specific type of cancer they had? Uh, And a common thing that we hear is, well, my aunt had female cancer. Well, that's not really specific enough because things like cervical cancer are usually not hereditary, whereas ovarian cancer has a much higher risk of being hereditary. So we try to get as much detail as we can about the family members. We actually draw out what we call a pedigree, which is a sort of picture representation of the family history. And then we look for patterns. We look for high-risk red flags, so to speak. And then we talk to the families about the pros and cons of testing, limitations, risks, benefits. We talk about potential insurance issues, you know, the Wait, what do you mean? Let me talk. What do you mean? Insurance issues. So a lot of people come in worried that their genetic test results could be used to discriminate against them. But the government actually enacted uh, laws uh, years ago, 2008, I believe, that prohibits that. So GINA, as we call it, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, GINA protects against discrimination uh, for health insurance, employment, things like that based on your test results. So your job can't use your genetic test results to fire you or to not hire you or to cut off your health insurance. Now, we also talk about things like life insurance because that's not a guarantee that's covered under GINA. So I always tell my patients, make sure that you have your life insurance plans in place before you do genetic testing because life insurance companies are now getting pretty smart and starting to ask these kind of questions. So we talk about all of these things. Um, including the psychosocial issues, the impact on family, what this information might do for them. So I know when I was applying for disability insurance, they asked me if I had any genetic family history. So I think disability is also one of those insurance types, right? Right. So those are the little details that we talk about with families. We want to make sure that everybody, I kind of say, get your ducks in a row, Uh, make sure that you have 
all of the insurance that you need is those optional insurances like disability insurance, life insurance. Those are not covered under GINA. They're not guaranteed under that federal protection. Um, so that's part of what we talk about. Uh, and again, the emotional component of this, genetic testing is not for everybody. Some people want to know this information. Other people worry that there could be guilt associated with having this information. I mean, certainly we can't control what we inherited from our own parents and we can't control what we pass on to our kids, but that is something to think about before you undergo genetic testing. So not to jump topics too much, but just, you know, one thing that I hear from my patients that are, are maybe older and we're talking about genetic testing, they say, well, I don't have any kids or, you know, I'm a woman, I have breast cancer and I have sons. So they think it wouldn't really benefit them. Do you think that's true or not true? I don't think that's true. And that's because, and we, we do see this a lot. We have people constantly in our office saying, well, I don't need to do this because I don't have any children, or like you said, they have sons. Um, I always remind our patients that when you have breast cancer, we could still find a genetic mutation that has an increased risk for other cancers that your sons could have. Um, there's also that idea that your sons could have daughters and you'd have granddaughters, and that's when those women start to think about those individuals too. Uh, when coming back around to patients who are affected with cancer and needing genetic testing, even if they don't have children, um, they're bound to have some other relatives, even cousins, aunts, uncles like that. But also we know it can impact them, especially when we're thinking about newly diagnosed patients. We start to think, how does this impact their treatment? For some individuals, it could impact if they need PARP inhibitors or it could impact their surgery. We see women constantly coming in newly diagnosed with breast cancer who are thinking, well, do I need to have a double mastectomy or do I want to have the smallest surgery possible? And knowing some of these risks would impact those decisions. But then on top of that, do we need to be aware of any other cancer risks for you down the line? Do we need to be considering what those screenings are and how often should we be doing them or any other surgeries you could possibly need in the future? Yeah, so Charlie, you mentioned PARP inhibitors, and I just want to you know, explain that a little bit more. There are specific chemotherapy regimens that are directed for women who have a BRCA mutation that have actually shown a benefit over some standard chemotherapy. So genetic testing may really impact not just the surgery you have, but also the chemotherapy regimen. So they come in, they talk to you. What, um, and you were saying it's really helpful to know your family history and the age and the specific cancers. I think some people find those conversations difficult to engage in with their family members. Mm -hmm. Do you have any suggestions for how to start that conversation? Because like you said, there's guilt and there's this psychological impact and you don't want somebody else to feel like guilty for having had cancer. Well, every single person has something in their family. So there's no family in the world that doesn't have something that quote unquote is running in it, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, I mean, that's just human nature that we have eventually something that we're going to develop, some disease, some condition. And we try to destigmatize that for patients. Again, expressing the fact that you can't control what you inherited from your own parents. These gene changes have likely been going through the family for many generations. Um, and many of them, you know, date back hundreds, thousands of years. Um, so we try to destigmatize that and get people to talk. Sometimes family outings or holidays or a time when families all together. 
um, and you can bring up that conversation and really try to use this as a point of empowering them. So we're not trying to place blame. We're really just trying to figure out how can we use this genetic information to help diagnose cancer earlier, to help get better treatment, uh, potentially save someone's life in the family. Uh, and, you know, working together. And if this family member gets testing and it has an informative result or we find a potential cause, then that information is going to be able to help many other family members as well. In the second segment of the podcast, Libby and Charlie explain the Hollings Cancer Genetic Counseling Program and what benefits it brings to patients. Men have a one in three chance. Women have a one in two chance. There's always that risk of cancer. But even then, we're typically seeing people for a reason. We're seeing them because they were already high risk. Either they have cancer, they have a family history of cancer, so they still have that familial risk. When we've ruled out everything we know of hereditary-wise, we still say there's no way that we can 100% rule out a hereditary cause. Obviously, years ago, we only knew of a few genes. Now we're testing 84. There's ways that later down the line, we could test more, but right now we can't test some of those genes, so we can't rule them out. Now, back to the chat. Thanks, Libby. So you got all that information. The patient decides they want to do testing. How do you actually do the test? What do they have to do? They give you blood, saliva. How does it work? We do typically we'll do blood if it's in-house, but we also do have the option of a saliva kit. Uh, we here at Hollings do see a lot of people who are not coming into the building, uh, and we're able to send them a saliva kit. Um, but also for some patients, blood just isn't an option. It's not something that is easily accessible for them. Uh, for some people, they're a hard stick, as they like to say. So we do still have that option, but it's, it's pretty minimal. It's just one small tube of blood that we send off. So what's the difference between the saliva test that you do and 23andMe? What's like, you know, we hear so much and we can dive into those commercial tests because I'm sure that this is um, something you're very passionate about. <laughs> yes, it, it is. Um, I mean, I, I will admit I've had testing through one of those companies myself, but I did it more for entertainment purposes. Uh, and I think that's one of the things to focus on. Um, the direct to consumer companies or DTC, as we say, um, have big. Be- that sounds like some lingo, yeah, direct right? to consumer. <laughs> DTC, direct to consumer. So it's a branch of testing that has become hugely popular. Um, I mean, you see commercials on TV now, people are buying it for Christmas gifts, and I get it. I mean, it is entertaining information, ancestry, and other things. I mean, we were just talking about psychological impact, and now we're giving it as Christmas gifts. Right. It's interesting, We've right? We've taken now. a really hard left turn, um, and now it's like a, a parlor trick or something. But what's concerning is that some of the companies are now doing health screening. So they're giving you information about your health and potentially your genetics in relationship to conditions or diseases. And it's true that DNA is DNA, whether it's saliva that's sent to 23andMe or whether it's sent to a commercial lab. Yes, the DNA is the same, but it's how that DNA is processed and analyzed at the lab that is different. And so, you know, many of these companies are only looking for a few variants Um, we know that there are literally thousands of genetic changes. Think about a gene as kind of like an instruction booklet, and we're looking for a misprint. Well, most of these direct-to-consumer companies look for two or three, whereas the labs that we use for genetic testing look for hundreds, if not thousands, of genetic changes that can cause that gene to not work. 
And so it's the level of coverage, it's the level of testing. Um, and there's actually a study that was published in 2018 in the journal Nature that looked at these companies that do genetic testing for health conditions, and they found that 40% of the abnormal, quote-unquote, abnormal results were actually false positives. Meaning, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to tell you a story. Yeah, I had a patient who came in to me prepared to have a bilateral mastectomy because she did one of these direct to consumer tests. It told her she had a BRCA BRCA one mutation, and she was, you know, distraught. Yeah, and and you know, she gave me this piece of paper, and right there on it said BRCA one mutation. And then I, you know, dug a little bit further and I saw it was one of those, you know, home consumer kits. And then I referred her to a, you know, genetic counselor and they did the real testing and she didn't have that mutation. Right. And I mean, what's scary to me is that there are not physicians or doctors involved in ordering that testing at these companies. And there's not a doctor signing off on those reports that are going out to patients or following up with them to see what happens. Now imagine if your same patient had gone to a doctor that didn't look so carefully at that. She could have had a life-changing surgery over an error. And so that's where I'm concerned and where I try to, you know, both of us, Charlie and I, you know, have talked about this extensively and we really try to encourage patients, please do not make any decisions off of the direct-to-consumer testing. If you're interested in genetic testing, make sure that it's done in a clinical lab with clinical oversight that's a reputable lab that has FDA and CLIA certification and that those results are truly um, reliable. Well, because if you just do one of those tests, you just get a piece of paper that tells you what your result is. You don't have any counseling, right? No one talks you through it. Right. Good luck with that is what they tell you. Thank you for the $99. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, Charlie, we're talking about, you know, if you meet these criteria, come in and have the testing done. How hard is it to get in to be seen? Like, What's access like? For us here at Hollings, access is pretty good. Uh, We just kind of created a a larger genetic counseling program with the addition of Libby and myself. Before we did have four genetic counselors who are doing telemedicine only, but now we've included two on site. So we have six genetic counselors here at Hollings. Uh, Libby and I are able to see patients when they come in kind of as an add-on, so pretty quickly. Uh, Right now, we're seeing patients as soon as one week from being referred. Uh, you'll, you will see some centers who are a little slower into getting in there, and they might wait a couple months, but we're doing pretty good in terms of that turnaround time of seeing people and getting patients in, especially if they're able to already be here for other appointments. We're really able to work with them and get them seen when it's, most, um, when it's easiest for them. So do you think that the need for counseling is going to continue to increase? Do you see the the NCCN continuing to add indications? Where do you think this is going to go? I definitely think it's going to just continue to increase. As Libby said earlier, the American breast surgeons have said all women need genetic counseling and genetic testing. Uh, Just last year, we included all pancreatic patients. We've just recently included all high-risk prostate patients. That list is just going to continue to grow. Um, We're also just going to see more and more people who are hearing about it in the media from people like Angelina Jolie, as we've mentioned before. We've now got Beyonce's father who's come out and said that men need genetic testing. So it's just 
a world that we are going to see so many people wanting it done, but also so many people going out to those locations like Libby's mentioned, where they're getting genetic testing outside that maybe isn't accurate. And those people are going to need that counseling to understand what they what they need to know about their risks. I mean, just last year, our volume increased 422%. I mean, that's incredible. Wow. Um, and what's yeah. interesting is that, you know, Genetic counseling has been a part of MUSC, the cancer program, for over 20 years. But for pretty much most of that 20-year period, there was just one counselor here. Um, and yet now we have six. Um, so we're, we're responding to the increase in interest and demand. Um, and because of that, we're able to get people in very quickly, which is very different than many of the centers across the country, as Charlie said. Yeah, as a breast surgeon, I talk with patients about genetic counseling, and for some of them, it's really going to impact their surgical decision-making. So the time frame between you know seeing you and having the test and having the result, what are you seeing for that length of time? For newly diagnosed breast patients, we're able to order something called a STAT panel testing, meaning that we get the first nine actionable breast cancer genes. Uh, those are the ones that have the highest risk for breast cancer, and they're the ones that come with NCCN recommendations that might impact surgery. Uh, for those first nine, they do come back in about seven to 10 business days. So we say in under two weeks, as long as everything's kind of moving forward with shipping and having that blood draw that day of. Uh, any other test that we're doing typically takes about only two to three weeks when we used to see testing take four to six months. So for the pancreatic and the prostate cancer, they could see results in two to three weeks from that. Exactly. And we just call I, those people, you know, on the phone, let them know their test results, give them any recommendations or guidelines based on their result, um, you know, help talk with them about testing for family members and how that would happen. Um, luckily, the lab that we work with offers free family testing for 90 days. So let's just say my patient tests positive for a BRCA mutation and her daughter or sister want testing. Well, they can have that testing for free for up to 90 days. Do they have to live in the same state nope. as the patient? Nope. They can live anywhere. They can have a kit shipped to them, uh, and we can help coordinate that with someone in their area. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. So I think there's like two scenarios. So there's the person who doesn't currently have cancer who's at high risk, right? Mm -hmm. They've experienced cancer in their family, and they're coming into you. And then there's the patient who's a newly diagnosed cancer, and they're wanting that genetics for their surgical decision-making or for their family. Is that really the two groups mm -hmm. that we're talking about? Okay. So, oh, go ahead. And, no, I just wanted to mention one thing, too, because this is a question that I get frequently is, you know, a lot of people have the misconception that genetic counseling is expensive or not covered by insurance. And, you know, for our patients here at Hollings, there's no out-of-pocket cost for genetic counseling, so that's not something they have to worry about. That's just part of the services that are covered here at Hollings. Um, and even if they do decide to pursue testing, most people may only owe $100 out-of-pocket, a uh, maximum of $250. Um, so to test 84 genes, which is the largest panel we order, that is only a maximum of $250 out-of-pocket. So that's really not unreasonable given the amount of genetic information that's coming out of that. So if you had genetic counseling and testing done, let's say in 2005, would you need to have any repeat testing done now? Are there time points that you know of where 
it's like, okay, well, if you had testing done during this time, it's old, it's outdated, you need to come back in. We, we know that when people had it probably 15 years ago, 10 plus years ago, they likely only had testing of BRCA1 and BRCA2. Uh, most people will come in and say, hey, I'm BRCA negative, so they don't think they need any more genetic testing. But we know at one point, BRCA testing was also limited where we weren't looking for every kind of mutation. Uh, we were only looking to see if the letters of that gene were spelled differently versus are there missing pieces, are there extra pieces? So some of those people not only had limited BRCA testing, but they only had BRCA testing as well. Um, so for some people, they need updated testing. It's not that our genes have changed. They're still the same. It's just now testing is looking at more. We've, we've learned more about genetics and there are more tests to do. So I like to say these variants of unknown significance, they're really just like saying we're not smart enough yet to know what this means. <laughs> yes. So, so if you have this VUS, will somebody call you and tell you, you know, down the line if it becomes significant or how do you manage that? Yes, yeah, so these um, VUSs that uh, patients may get, the labs are really good about updating those periodically. So we get updates on patients uh, quite frequently, and we tell patients, you know, to check back in with us every year or two. Um, but of course, if we get a update, we're going to try to reach out to the patient at the last contact information we had for them um, and let them know. And many of the VUSs uh, are ultimately categorized as benign or not associated with an increased risk for cancer. So a good news, a good result. Um, but occasionally they can be, you know, put into the more concerning category. Um, and that is why it's good for those patients to check back with us every year or two just to get an update, see if there's been any new information. Uh, one of the things that's really great now, which didn't happen 10 years ago, is that labs are sharing their information. It used to be that one lab controlled sort of the monopoly on genetic testing for the BRCA1 and 2 gene. Um, but in 2013, the Supreme Court said, you know what, you cannot patent a gene. You don't own the gene. And so other labs can do testing for that. And when that happened, that really opened up the floodgates for other labs to join in in testing. And as a result of that, there's a lot more communication and sharing of that information. So labs now give their information to a database called ClinVar, and that's a sharing site, basically, where you can put in the information about the variant, and that way, whether you're tested in Germany or the U.S. or Canada, that information is being shared amongst scientists so we can get a better idea of what is the true significance of this result. Um, so that is great. And, and that's why patients need to kind of check back in if they have one of those VUS results. Is a no a no though? Like if you have testing and you get a no result, can you like hang your hat on that and, and feel good about it? No. Great question, though. We we could, we could hear that all the time. You'll hear people constantly say, I'm negative, so I'm good. I don't have cancer risk. Uh, as Libby said earlier, men have a one in three chance. Women have a one in two chance. There's always that risk of cancer. But even then, we're typically seeing people for a reason. We're seeing them because they were already high risk. Either they have cancer, they have a family history of cancer, so they still have that familial risk. When we've ruled out everything we know of hereditary-wise, we still say there's no way that we couldn't 100% rule out a hereditary cause. 
obviously years ago, we only knew of a few genes. Now we're testing 84. There's ways that later down the line we could test more, but right now we can't test some of those genes, so we can't rule them out. So we know that not only do we have a general population risk for cancers, but depending on the family history, we also have those increased risks as well. They're just not nearly as high as if we had found something in one of those genes. I'd say the best case scenario is, let's just say your mother, grandmother, and two aunts had cancer, and they actually did get genetic testing. And we now know that their cancer was because of a BRCA mutation. And we actually have their test result that you brought in for your counseling session. And we're looking at mom's test results. Now, if we test you for that exact same mutation or genetic change, and you're negative for that, then that is really reassuring. It doesn't mean you can't get cancer. It just means that the cancer in your family that we're seeing appears to be related to that genetic change, which you luckily did not inherit. And your risk is basically most likely back down to the general population risk. So there are other tools that we use to calculate risk aside from just the blood or the saliva testing. Uh, As a breast surgeon, you know, assessing people for high risk, being part of that process and determining, you know, who gets referred to for counseling. I use two additional tests, the the Gale Risk Assessment and the Tyre Cusick. Do you guys use those tests? Do you like them? Do you think they're beneficial for assessing risk? I personally have always liked Tyre Cusick. Um, Right now, we mostly see patients who are affected with cancer, but when we do get patients who are unaffected, have that family history, Tyracusic is really good at making them eligible for additional screening. Uh, We'll see patients who have a large family history of breast cancer. Some of those relatives aren't available to test, so we can't rule out mutations for those relatives. So what we can do is put in that patient's personal and family history into Tyracusic, and it can give us an estimated risk number. And if it's over that 20%, then they're eligible for that extra MRI, which we know is one of the best screenings, and that patient now feels more comfortable because they're getting seen probably every six months and having the best screening possible. Well, I think what it's nice about models, I mean, there's certainly no perfect model to estimate a person's risk. You know, a lot of these models are limited because they might have been only studied in a certain ethnic population, so it may not be representative of all ethnic groups. Um, And you can't take into account every potential risk factor that increases your risk for cancer. Like we know there's lots of other environmental factors, you know, whether it's alcohol, whether it's exercise, diet, lifestyle. And there's really not a perfect model that incorporates every risk factor. Um, So we do try to use a variety of models uh, to try to get some or our best risk estimate for that patient. I think that's what's really important to take away from this is as a person who's coming in thinking they're high risk, you have so many options and nothing is going to happen without your consent. And being referred to a genetic counselor, hearing those options, talking through the risks and the benefits. And you may decide, I just want to answer some questions. I want to go through these questionnaires like the Tyre Cusick and the Gale model. Or I want to share with you my family history and you can do the pedigree and make recommendations. And then if you ultimately decide to have testing, you can decide what you do with that information. I think a lot of people get a little scared that once they get that information, they'll be obligated to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And as a breast surgeon, I'm here to say, 
just because you have the information doesn't mean you have to do something. Right. We can talk through all of those options. Well, and even, um, you know, for people who say, you know, I don't know that I'm willing to share this information with my children yet. Let's just say my children are in their 20s and I don't think they're emotionally ready to know their, you know, genetic status. You know, let's just say that, you know, a patient comes in and, and she does have a genetic change, a BRCA mutation, for example, and, and she's not ready for her children to be tested or maybe they are not ready to be tested it's still valuable to have that information. It's sort of like your genetic legacy. Good or bad, it's your genetic legacy. And at least if we have that information, at any point, if your children or siblings or other family members want to be tested, that information will be available. In our final segment, Libby and Charlie wrap up the conversation with a chat about DNA banking and what you should consider if you're thinking about genetic testing. I think one of the biggest things we always try to push for people to understand is that us telling you you have a genetic mutation is not one of those things where we're saying you're absolutely going to get this cancer, you're going to get these other cancers. Uh, We do have patients who come in when they have cancer, they think we're telling them, well, this means you're going to develop another cancer, or someone unaffected saying, well, you're going to develop cancer. And that's not what we're doing at all. We're trying to give you the information to empower you to know what your risks are and how you can manage those risks. Having a mutation is not a guarantee for cancer. It just means that increased risk, and we want to make sure you're being followed for those risks properly. Now, back to the chat. That's a really good point. So how young should or could you be to do genetic testing? Like, do you have a specific age? Is it 18 or 25? The recommendation is to wait until 18 because we know most of these cancer risks aren't happening until we're above the age of 18, so we want people to make that choice. A big reason coming back to that Geno law we discussed, we want them to know how this impacts their their insurance. Do they want to think about their life insurance, but also how ready are they emotionally to handle this information? We do know there are some genetic mutations where screening starts younger than 18, and that's when we would take into consideration how young would we test those people. If the screening's starting in childhood, we would want to go ahead and have those people tested so that they're being screened properly. Well, what are some examples of those? For example, we we have one that's called an APC gene. It's associated with familial adenomatous polyposis, or FAP. Um, it's one that we, we typically say it has about a 100% chance of colorectal cancer. We're seeing colorectal cancer very, very young. So we are testing people much younger. So they are starting colonoscopies even at the age of 10. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I was... Yeah. Well, and, and prophylactic surgeries are, are recommended for those individuals too. Um, and then the other example would be probably Lee-Fromani syndrome, uh, which is a mm-hmm. TP53 mutation or genetic change. And those are individuals where we can even see cancer in children or newborns. Um, they can have uh, brain tumors and others, other cancers that strike very young. So those are probably the two biggest examples of where we might actually test children. But for the vast majority, we wait until they're 18 and they're an adult uh, and able to make that decision on their own. Yeah, I assume those instances come up because of something that's happening in the hospital and the physicians having those conversations. Like that's not something that people who are listening at home need to be worried about for their kids, right? Right. And you can even do something um, like DNA banking. This is something um, that let's just say your patient comes in and she has cancer and she wants to leave this information for her family or at least leave her DNA, but she's not willing or ready to have the testing herself. 
she, for less than $200, can bank her DNA, meaning she takes a blood sample or a saliva sample, and she sends it to a company who will store it for 100 years uh, for one low cost, and that DNA is available. So let's just say she never wanted to know that information, but she wanted her DNA available in case her children wanted to do the testing. Well, that DNA is banked. And so that, again, is just another genetic legacy that you have because, again, we know testing an affected person is the most useful. Um, that's even an option. So these are all things that we can talk about with patients during counseling, just different ways of looking at this information. That's men and women. They can both do the, the banking. Yeah, absolutely. My DNA is banked. Help them. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And oh, wow. two or three of my family members. Well, I mean, we're genetics geeks, so, you know, what do you get for that? <laughs> geeks, I think that's a, that's a special <laughs> term. So why then, I mean, you're banking your DNA already. Clearly, you're passionate about this. Why are you a genetic counselor? Libby, like, why did you go into this field? So I love genetics from middle school on, but I knew I didn't want to work in a lab. Um, I knew that I wanted to work in a field where I got to talk with people and help people. Uh, and I was fortunate enough, ironically, that when I was in high school, I did job shadowing with Lynn Hammond, who was actually the first cancer genetic counselor at MUSC. She started out in pediatrics, but then went into cancer. And so I was in high school and would job shadow with her. And I was just fascinated about taking a complicated topic like genetics and being able to explain that in a way that people of all ages, all education levels, all, all knowledge bases could understand. And helping them through some of the most difficult times of their lives uh, and, and helping them to understand the information and how it may be useful and helpful for them. Um, and as far as cancer, cancer has always been a part of my life, uh, I feel like. Uh, I'm a cancer survivor. I've watched several family members battle cancer. And so I've been on both sides of the fence as a professional in healthcare as well as a patient. Uh, and I feel like having someone there to help be your advocate and, and to be a resource for you during this time is incredibly powerful. Uh, so I'm excited and happy to be here to be a part of that. We are super thrilled that you are here too. And congratulations on your cancer survivorship. Thank you. Charlie, what drew you to MUSC? Coming to MUSC, I had actually been living in Knoxville, Tennessee, but I'm from Georgia, so I really wanted to come closer towards Georgia, but for some reason, something drew me to Charleston. I was really excited about the idea. Uh, when I first interviewed here, finding out that everyone here is really interested in working with us as genetic counselors, incorporating us into the multidisciplinary stuff. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's refreshing. You go a lot of places where genetic counseling is very unknown. It's kind of off to the corner. Not everyone is really in support of it. Uh, but here at MUSC, we feel very supported. Um, we, we are very incorporated in the care of our patients. And we also have many providers who are kind of advocating for us as well as a profession. And then also in turn being great advocates for our patients when we are not able to at certain instances. Right. So you mentioned how at MUSC you're part of the discussion. So at Breast Tumor Board, you're sitting in, you're listening to all the new, you know, cancer patients being presented and the history that we have. And, and you're telling us as physicians, okay, make sure you're bringing up genetic counseling, they meet criteria. And that is really helpful to me as a physician when I go and meet somebody for the first time 
So I can start to introduce that as an option. Well, and I think it's important, too, that we're not only involved in the breast tumor board, but we're part of the gynecological cancer tumor boards, as well as GI and GU. Um, So to go back to a question from earlier, you know, how do you know if your patient is right for genetic counseling or appropriate? You know, by us participating in these tumor boards from various specialties, we're reviewing these patients' cases, their family histories, their charts, and making recommendations on the patients that would be most appropriate. So it's really a team approach to taking care of patients. Well, I feel so much smarter for having listened to both of you today. I, you know, I really feel like I came away having more information to talk with my patients. Just to kind of hit on the highlights again, if you're listening to this at home and you're thinking about, am I somebody who should have genetic testing, Charlie, who, you know, at home should think about getting referred to you? Our biggest ones are people who we know have a, har- a large family history of cancer, especially when we're thinking of some of the bigger ones like breast, colorectal, pancreatic, ovarian. Um, when they're seeing, we have people who say they go to family reunions and they all of a sudden learn 10 relatives had cancer. Those are the people we really want to hit if they haven't had cancer themselves. And then when we're thinking about the people who have had cancer, if they've had it really young, 50 and under, a lot of those people probably weren't offered testing 10 plus years ago, but now they can be eligible for that because they are very young with cancer and they might want to start considering those options now. And then Libby, what happens if you find out that you have a mutation? Well, this information can really help your management and treatment. As we discussed, there are certain medications or chemotherapy agents that you might be a candidate for because of your genetic testing status. Um, It also helps uh, clue us in as to other cancers that you may be at risk for. So you might have come in because of a history of endometrial or uterine cancer, but now we need to be looking at your colon cancer screening more seriously. Um, So it's really helping us to best take care of the patient with uh, cancer and also the family members that may be at risk. Is there anything I missed that you think is important for people to know? I think one of the biggest things we always try to push for people to understand is that us telling you you have a genetic mutation is not one of those things where we're saying you're absolutely going to get this cancer, you're going to get these other cancers. Uh, We do have patients who come in when they have cancer, they think we're telling them, well, this means you're going to develop another cancer or someone unaffected saying, well, you're going to develop cancer. And that's not what we're doing at all. We're trying to give you the information to empower you to know what your risks are and how you can manage those risks. Having a mutation is not a guarantee for cancer. It just means that increased risk. And we want to make sure you're being followed for those risks properly. Yeah, that's a really good point. And really, knowledge is power, right? Like, the goal of medicine is to try to be as proactive as we can. That's why screenings exist for many different types of conditions. Um, And having that information allows you to make educated decisions about your health care. And that's powerful. Um, And I think that's helpful for a lot of people. And they're your results. You get to choose who you share them with, what you do with them. Um, But at least you have that knowledge to make those decisions. Thank you so much for talking with me today, for helping raise awareness about genetic counseling and screening and testing and kind of demystify some of how that process takes place. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cancer Chat. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and visit us online at www.howlingscancercenter.musc.edu. 
And remember, here at the Hollings Cancer Center, we're finding tomorrow's cure for cancer today.